0: Hello and welcome to Fast Pass to the Past, the theme park history podcast. I'm your host, Austin, and thank you for joining my wonderful world of theme park history. Have you ever wondered what the origin story was behind some of your favorite attractions and theme parks? Well, you're in the right place. I'm a former cast member at the Disneyland Resort and a current annual pass holder at both Disneyland and Universal Studios Hollywood, so I guess you could say I know a little bit about theme parks, and I'm kind of obsessed with them. After being a history major in college, I figured, why not share my love of theme parks and theme parks' unique and original history with the world? So thank you so much for making that dream a reality and listening to my podcast. This is my first ever episode, and this week we'll be discussing another first. The first theme park. I figured that would be a little appropriate. And no, it's not what you think it is. Long before Walt Disney sat on a bench (laughs) at the carousel in Griffith Park, and began to imagine a magical place called Disneyland, or at least that's what everyone says happens, seems pretty unlikely. Uh, two pioneers had already created America's first theme parks. Their names were Walter Knotts and Will Coach. Don't get me wrong, I don't mean to disrespect Walt Disney in any way. There were plenty of amusement parks at the time. have probably heard of parks like Coney Island that provided really an assortment of haphazard rides, carnival games, and those pesky carnies. They, like I said, they were already pretty established at the time, even out west, even in California. The Venice Amusement Pier was one that really stands out because it was around in the 1920s and 1930s, When Walt Disney actually arrived, and it's possible it was also attended by Walt or not as well. So what is the real difference between an amusement park and a theme park? That's a really, really good question. It pretty much boils down to the fact that an amusement park doesn't have any themed areas. So a theme park is really an amusement park that has an area that has theming. So this could be really anything from the Wild West to even Santa Claus. Believe it or not, those were the two themes of the first two theme parks that currently claim and endlessly debate the title of first American theme park. Santa Claus Land, which is now Holiday World, in Santa Claus, Indiana, and Knott's Berry Farm in Bruna Park, California, which as many of you know is just a couple miles north of Disneyland. The debate is a little complicated due to the lack of actual attractions at these parks when they first opened, and the fact that they really evolved pretty organically from such strange beginnings. Santa Claus Land was basically a section of a real town, and Walter Knott's Park was really built out of a successful chicken restaurant. However, for the purposes of this podcast, and really for simplicity's sake, we will award the title of oldest to Knott's Berry Farms of Bruna Park, California, Walter Knott's first themed area was a ghost town and covered wagon show, which opened in 1941 and 1942, respectively, which is a fully four years prior to the opening of Santa Claus Land. We can cover the strangeness that is Holiday World, formerly Santa Claus Land, on another podcast, However, if you're itching to go, the park is still open seasonally, but ironically not during the holiday season. But let's go ahead and get into the story about one man who revolutionized the theme park industry, and guess what? It it didn't start with a mouse. It started with some chicken and some berries. At 31 years of age, with $250 in his pocket and a beat-up Ford Model T, Walter Knott and his family moved to Bruna Park, California, which at the time was rural farmland. It's hard to believe, but there are actually oranges in Orange County at the time. The Knott's rented a 20-acre berry farm and in 1923 built a roadside stand to sell their berries and jams to pasture buys. Again, nothing remotely theme park-esque. One of their early employees described their original stand as a lean-to with palm fronds. In 1928, apparently having sold a ton of berries, the Knott's family used their savings to buy the land and build an 80-foot complex. In fact, you can still see the original structure if you've ever gone to Knott's Berry Farms. It's the building where the grab-and-go chicken restaurant and bakery are now. The complex was the original room where Cordelia, which is Mr. Knott's wife, had their original tea room, but it didn't serve chicken just yet, so don't get ahead of me. With the start of the Depression, the Berry business really is what kept them afloat during this time in the 30s. So, How did berries save them exactly? Well, here's where the story gets really insane. In 1932, Mr. Knott rediscovered a forgotten berry that was made by a Mr. Rudolph Boysen in the 1920s in Anaheim. So basically, the story goes, it's something about a bush in this dead guy's yard who used to live in Napa and liked to cross berries, and then Mr. Knott somehow found out about this. But anyway, they discovered this berry in a dead guy's yard, and Mr. Knott called it the boysenberry. And the thing about the boysenberry was that it was a cross between several berries, including the loganberry, blackberry, and a raspberry. So these berries were basically huge. (laughs) Basically, I would say about the size of your thumb— Mrs. Knott seeing a huge opportunity here to use these berries that they were growing in pies is what really kind of kick-started her side business in the tea room. And people would come from all over to have these, like, four-inch giant boysenberry pies. Actually, two years After the discovery of the boysenberry, they struck gold, but not literally. (laughs) Mrs. Knott started to serve her chicken dinners on her wedding china to tea room diners. The idea behind this was that people would stay longer and buy more berries and jam if they were able to eat there as well, instead of just having something simple like a sandwich. The dinners were actually only 65 cents when they started. And then word spread pretty quickly about how amazing these chicken dinners were. And in just a few weeks, the tea room was filled with people. In 1937, which is just like two years later, they were serving 1,774 chickens a day on average which is pretty insane. Just a year later, they built two more dining rooms, but there was still a four-hour wait time for their meals, especially on Sundays. And Mr. Knot actually, he has a recording of him saying that he absolutely hated Sundays because we'd just come out and then everyone would be super angry that they were waiting so long to eat chicken. Mr. Knot. Being the nice man that he was, in March of that year, that would be 1938, he began to build various attractions to entertain and delight hungry customers while they waited. These included a rock garden, a waterfall, an old stagecoach, a replica of George Washington's fireplace in Mount Vernon, for some reason and a volcano. And actually, it's funny that you can actually still see two of these items at Knott's Berry Farms, which is the fireplace and the rock garden, and that's actually just behind that original building. However, it wasn't really until 1940, which is about two years later, that Mr. Knott started to build his first themed land, cementing his claim, in my mind at least, to America's oldest theme park, which is actually still the park's tagline. The land was originally called... Ghost Town Village. The inspiration for this is that Mr. Knott grew up listening to his grandmother's tales about traveling across the Mojave Desert to California in a covered wagon. And the Ghost Town he built was sourced from real ghost towns from the American West that he transported to Bruna Park. It's kind of a collection of sorts. By the time Ghost Town Village opened in 1941, Mr. Knott had spent $12,000, which at the time was a heck of a lot of money on building this attraction, this themed land, but it remained free. Totally free. You could go there, you could walk around, you didn't even have to have chicken. The covered wagon show came along about a year later, and that pretty much further cemented Knott's kind of roadside attraction themed land idea. However, little did they know there was a mouse moving in just a little bit over 10 years later, just up the road. And that little mouse just happened to be one of the Knott's family's closest friends. It's so crazy, and that's what we're going to talk about next. Many people believe that Knott's Berry Farms and its neighbor Disneyland have always been rivals. And that's not true. Actually, it's the opposite. The Disneys were close family friends of the Knott's family in the 1950s and the late 1940s. Walt Disney and his wife were even honored guests at the inaugural run of the railroad attraction at Knott's Berry Farms in 1952, which, as many of you know, was three years prior to Disney opening his own railroad and his own theme park. I I just gotta say, this must have been really the most awkward friendship of all time. I mean, Disney was all, I'm gonna build my own park at dinner one day, and Mr. Knott was all like, where are you gonna do that? And Disney was like, somewhere, I don't know. Uh, to be fair, Walt Disney was looking at other locations to build Disneyland initially, I recall reading somewhere that he was looking at St. Louis and around the Stanford University area, which is in Northern California. But still, he was friends with the Knott's, and he built a theme park very, very close to their theme park. Yeah, and Mr. Knott knew about this, obviously. Um been like a month or so of them starting to build Disneyland, and he did confront Walt about it. We don't have that exact conversation, but... Walt Disney did send Mr. and Mrs. Knotts tickets, uh, gold passes, to opening day, and they did attend Disneyland's opening day in 1955. Mr. and Mrs. Knotts did take Disney up on his offer of these gold tickets. So they arrived to Disneyland opening day and were surprised, not only by how packed it was, but by the similarities in the attractions particularly in Frontierland with the stagecoaches and trains and Main Street. Little do they know at the time, Disneyland's original Imagineers had visited Knott's Berry Farm several times in the months prior to get inspiration. Now, that's not really something that you do to your friend, but that's what Walt Disney did. (laughs) Mr. Knott, in interviews before his death, actually recalled that he remembered thinking... It's so packed here, we might as well just head home and send the employees home because everyone's at Disneyland. However, uh, as the story goes, they returned home and they found the parking lot completely full and the chicken dinners were still flying off the shelves, basically. It's actually funny that 1955, when Disneyland opened, was the best year. Knott's Berry Farm had really had up to that point. Which just goes to show that maybe, at least initially, they needed some competition. They needed a reason for people to travel to rural Orange County from the more busy atmosphere of Los Angeles. And the competition definitely inspired Mr. Knott, ushered in really an unmatched golden era of new attractions, including an Indian village, the haunted shack, and a Bud Hobbit carousel. Now, I know you must be wondering, who was Bud Robert? Well, he was really an Imagineer before there was even an Imagineer, but for for Mr. Knotts, Walt Disney himself would come to Knotts frequently to see the master's work, which included uh, Calico Mountain Ride and the Timber Mountain Log Ride. Both rides would spawn out of Mr. Knotts and Bud's fruitful collaboration that only ended with Mr. Knotts' death, He was also the creator of themed queue areas, which is probably his biggest claim to fame. Walt Disney himself was actually quite taken with this idea, and according to onlookers, when Bud took Walt on a quick tour of his new attraction, Walt exclaimed, and I quote, You sneaky SOB to Bud upon realizing that the cube continued inside the entrance to the ride. It's also really worthwhile to note that Knott's Berry Farms did not start charging an admissions fee until 1968, which is 13 years after Disneyland opened. While they sold individual tickets for shows and attractions, Ghost Town and Mr. Knott's numerous themed lands were free to experience for all until 1968. Many OC natives still recall childhoods spent Roaming the park and panning for gold, and that was really Knott's attention. Although Disneyland wanted to create an area where all families and children could really have fun together, Mr. Knott really wanted to show people what it was like to live in these western towns, and he really wanted there to be an educational element. And that is kind of why the park didn't start challenging a mission until 1968. By the time of Mr. Knott's death in 1981... America's first theme park had changed dramatically. There were new lands like Fiesta Village, an exact replica of Independence Hall, new coasters like the Corkscrew, and just two years after his death, the Camp Snoopy area finally provided the park with a mascot. Mr. Knott also started the first Halloween attraction at a theme park, a three-night engagement in 1973, just recently celebrated its 45th year in 2017. Since then, Knott's Scary Farms has inspired constant spin-offs. yet still remains the original theme park scare zone. It's crazy. Uh, The park went on to be operated by the Knott's family for another 14 years after Mr. Knott's death. In 1997, the Knott's family did sell the family business. At first, Quite strangely, they were offered to sell the park to the Walt Disney Company to become Disney's America, which had failed to be built by Washington, D.C. However, fearing this would mean the demolishment of all of their father's creations, they instead sold the park to the Cedar Fair Entertainment Company with the promise they would continue to maintain the nostalgic aspects of the park, including their father's beloved ghost town. Cedar Farm has lived up to this promise, bringing live actors back to Ghost Town to act out stories and educate Orange County youth on California history. Ghost Town Live operates seasonally in the summer and is definitely something to check out. Cordelia Knott's chicken dinners are still being served on property in their expanded and recently renovated dining space, which is available to the public and park guests. 1999 gets you the same meal as when it was served in 1940 all for horses, and with boysenberry pie on the side. Uh, that makes me so hungry! <laughs> if you're interested in checking out Knott's Berry Farms or going to Knott's Scary Farms, I will link to the Knott's website in the show notes. You can also find a great article by SoCal History Land that chronicles where you can find the original buildings and attractions in the park, that are still standing, which is a great resource if you plan on visiting soon. And I'll link that resource in the show notes. The show notes can be found at theme park history podcast.com. That's theme park history podcast.com. And if you have any suggestions for show topics that you want to know about, then go ahead and shoot me an email at fastpass to the past at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening. It really means the world to me. I really hope that you enjoyed learning about Knott's Berry Farms as much as I enjoyed researching it. Please go ahead and leave an iTunes review. I am a brand new podcast, and no one knows that I exist. So if you enjoyed this podcast and you want to hear more, please leave an iTunes review. That would be amazing. And have a magical day.